Good morning. You can just uh, follow along, listen as I read I'm from Colossians. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you, Mike. Well, this is uh, week two and day eight of our 50-day spiritual journey together. And if you haven't jumped in yet, it's really not too late. Just for you, it'll be a 42-day journey. I keep uh, getting emails and see Facebook posts from some of you who are already seeing the fruit of allowing Jesus Christ to take center stage, first place in your life. And I hope that you continue sharing those stories. There are three commitments that we're making to each other during this time to be here on the weekends, to share together in learning the Word of God, the book of Colossians that we're walking through together. Also to participate in a 50 days small group. And if you're not yet in a group, it's not too late. If you need some help and guidance in that, you can just call the office here, ask for Pastor Jay, our small small group guru, and uh, he will help guide you. And then third is to play a portion of that audio CD that we've made available. Again, we ran out last weekend, so again, we ordered more. And if you haven't had a chance to uh, pick one of those up, you can do that at the 50 days table out in the lobby. And it's good stuff. You've been listening to that? Just, you know, godly input is essential in renewing our minds and giving Jesus his rightful place in our lives. So I hope you'll take advantage of that. If you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1. And last weekend, we learned from the opening paragraph of Paul's letter that putting Jesus first in our lives involves continually learning and believing his gospel message. Amen? What that means is that Christian growth, spiritual growth, doesn't begin with behaving better. It begins with believing better. That's what we're learning. We're reminded once again that the wonderful message of the gospel is not just for non-Christians, non-believers. It certainly is for them, but it's also for believers. We need to hear the gospel often as well. Well, today we're going to see a second truth that emerges in this letter, and I want to put it this way, our preeminence principle uh, number two for this weekend, putting Jesus first, putting Jesus first in our hearts and lives will lead us to pray for spiritual growth in other people. In other words, as Jesus becomes more and more preeminent in our lives, we'll begin praying for others that Jesus will be first in their lives as well. This Wednesday, I told our ministry leadership team that I think there's a a syndrome, a prayer syndrome that I think the Lord wants us to start combating together. I'm not sure what to call it yet, but I've experienced it, and you probably have too. I'd probably call it the hey, everything's going fine, so I don't need prayer syndrome. You know what I'm talking about? Have you experienced that? It kind of plays out like this. You're in a small group, and it's time for prayer. And the leader says, okay, does anybody have any prayer requests? And you start going around the circle, and Joe shares something, and Mary shares something, and people are sharing, and they come to somebody, and they say, well, you know, hey, actually, it's all good right now. Everything's going great. I don't think I need any prayer. 
And the leader goes, okay, and goes on to the next person. I, I think that what gets communicated by that is that prayer is only needed for people who are in trouble or struggling with something or discouraged or they've had something bad happen. And if things are going smoothly and there hasn't been any recent disasters, then there's really no need for prayer. I think that's what gets communicated. Now listen, it's fine to pray for people who are in distress and who are troubled. We should do that, and and we do that. But if that's the only time prayer is needed, then basically prayer gets reduced to disaster relief. And in the Bible, prayer is so much more than disaster relief. It really is. I think it's significant that in this letter, Paul is obviously encouraged by how well the Colossians are doing, and yet he still prays for them. And what does he pray for? He prays for their spiritual growth, their spiritual advancement and progress in their walk with Christ. You know what? You can always pray for spiritual growth for people, regardless if their circumstances are pleasant or if they're having a difficult time. You can always pray for their spiritual growth. You can minister to them by advancing their growth through your prayers to God on their behalf. We're going to come back to that in a few moments. I don't know if you've thought about it like this, but praying for people is a ministry. You could call it the ministry of prayer. I know of of disabled people who can't even get out of their homes much, but through prayer they can touch people across the street, across town, or even across the world. Because prayer knows no geographic boundaries. You know, you can talk to people about God, and and we should, and that's called evangelism, but you can also talk to God about people, and that's called intercessory prayer, and that's what we're talking about this morning. That's what Paul is doing. I want to just make a few quick observations. When I read through this prayer in the passage that Mike shared with us, I just made a few observations briefly. I noticed that praying seemed to be Paul's reflex response to what he saw and heard. I noticed that his prayers were unceasing. Did you see that? We ceased not to pray for you. And they were full of, his prayer was full of requests. Eight or nine, depending on how you break it down. Prayer requests for the Colossian church. I noted his his requests were God-centered and primarily spiritual. And they were guided by an awareness of the spiritual influences that he knew about in the lives of that church. I also saw that his prayer focused on God's vast supply, God's wisdom, God's strength, God's power, God's might, God's work on their behalf. And his prayer was soaked in gospel. It was bathed in gospel truths. It's quite a prayer. And, you know, you read a prayer like that, and and you're thinking about your own prayer life, and you're thinking, man, I'm not Paul. I'm not that spiritual. You know, I haven't planted any churches like he did. I didn't write half the New Testament like Paul did. But I want to, I want to say to you that while that may be true, you can grow in your prayer life. You can grow in your ability to pray for others. And I'll tell you this, as you seek to give Jesus the place of preeminence in your heart, he's going to draw you to pray for other people, especially spiritually. And so I want us to learn three things this morning from Paul's prayer here. And the first is this. The ministry of prayer, we could say it this way, involves learning to to pray reflexively. And what I mean by that is as your first 
instinct, your first response, your initial response to pray. Verse 9, he starts out and says, And so, from the day we heard, remember Paul had received a report about this church, that they were doing well, their faith and hope and love were evident and growing, and the gospel had come to them and had taken root in their lives and was bearing fruit, and Paul was encouraged and thanking God for them. And he says, And so, the moment I heard that, I started to pray for you. You know, we all see and hear things every day in our lives, don't we? You drive to work, and maybe you see an accident on the side of the road. How many of you have seen an accident in the last month or so? Yeah, especially this time of year, right? With the roads being are what they are. And you get to work, and maybe on your lunch break, a coworker leans over and says, hey, I just want to let you know my, my dad died yesterday. Or maybe you're at school, and you see a kid getting picked on and getting made fun of. Or maybe you attend small group and someone in your small group reveals that their teenage son or teenage daughter is not making good choices these days and is heading down a certain path. Stuff happens in our lives and we hear about it, but my question is, what is your initial reflex response when you hear things? Is it to pray? I get the sense from reading this letter and Paul's other letters that his reflex response to just about everything was first to pray about it. Imagine having the kind of relationship with God where that was true of you, where something happens and you immediately say, oh, Lord, you've got to work in this situation. God, show up. Make yourself known here. Help them grow spiritually through this situation. Magnify Jesus Christ in what's going on here. Imagine if you could live your life that way. Now, I'm not talking necessarily about, you know, Stopping what you're doing, bowing your head, closing your eyes, folding your hands, and praying. That's especially not recommended if you're driving, you know, and you see something. Don't do that. (laughs) What I'm talking about is a God consciousness. You know what I'm talking about? A 24-7 connection with your Creator made available to you through Jesus Christ. An ongoing conversation that's going on in your head with the Lord as you go through your day. That's what I'm talking about. Now, I can tell you that if this kind of ongoing dialogue with God starts to become natural for you, some funny things can happen. I was talking to a guy on the phone, I think it was a couple weeks ago, and and when I talk with people, I try to pray, you know, before I talk with them, and even while I'm talking with them, and after I talk with them. In this particular conversation, we're talking, and I'm praying, and I, I inadvertently called him Lord. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, we kind of got a kick out of that. And, and I hope that means that, you know, prayer is becoming second nature to me and not that my brain is putrefying and <laughs> running down my neck. I can assure you of this. As you give King Jesus prominence in your heart, as you let Jesus reign in you, you will find him drawing you into a continuous, ongoing conversation with him about the things that are going on in your life and the things that you encounter. That's going to happen. There are a number of people in this room for whom prayer has already become their default mode. They are wonderful people. You ought to get to know them. Intercessors. Some of them serve on our prayer, in our prayer partner ministry. But we can all grow in this area, talking with God first about the things that happen in our lives. So that, that becomes our instinctive reflex response to what we see and what we hear. 
So Paul, thank you for that. Thank you for teaching us that the ministry of prayer involves learning to pray reflexively. There's a second aspect to Paul's ministry that I want us to note, and that is that the ministry of prayer focuses on learning to pray spiritually. Spiritually. As we noted earlier, this is a very spiritual prayer. Paul primarily asks God for spiritual stuff. And what I get from this is that we need to understand that while the Lord is concerned with our physical well-being and our physical needs, he's even more concerned with the spiritual development of our hearts. And so often the, the physical is really just an avenue to the spiritual. And I think this is another area where many of us have a lot of room to grow. You see, intercessory prayer in the Bible is not just one-dimensional. It's not just praying for pain relief or relief of discomfort. If we take our cues from Paul, it should actually focus more on their spiritual growth. So let's look at this prayer again. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now here comes the content of his prayer. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. It's interesting, isn't it? Focus is definitely spiritual, isn't it? Paul's prayers focus on the spiritual growth and development of the believers in that congregation, in that church. And we can pray that way too. Now there's a lot here. Each of these individual requests could actually be an entire sermon. There's just a lot here. And I believe, I've studied this a lot over the years, this passage, and I believe that what we have here is not so much a calculated, reasoned sequence for spiritual growth in these eight or nine requests. What I see here is just these things kind of pouring out of Paul like a waterfall. Just wave after wave, just the stuff that was in his heart for these people just kind of came out and the waves kind of rolled over each other, kind of like the wave pool at Zumbezi Bay. You know how those waves just keep coming and coming and coming relentlessly. That's, that's the picture of what I get here as Paul is praying. I'd love to go in-depth on each of these requests, but we don't have time. I encourage you to study them on your own. We're going to touch on each of them lightly today. You can pray for people this way. You can pray for people like Paul did. He started by saying, I'm, I'm asking God that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. God, may your people be consumed with your will. Be filled up by it. The concept of being filled or being full or fullness is a very important word in Colossians. We see it in several places. Chapter 119, it says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Christ is fully God. Chapter 2, verse 9, it says, In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. The idea of the word is to be completely filled up and satisfied with something. So the idea is kind of like this. I hold here in my hands a pitcher of water, and I am filling up this glass, and it is 
completely full. And no, I'm not going to drink it, because I have no idea what that would taste like, what blue food coloring would taste like. But notice, there is, I'm going to drop this, clear stop. Notice, there's no room for anything else in that glass. It's full. No room for anything else. Paul said, I want you to be filled to the brim with the knowledge of God's will. The idea is to be consumed, to be controlled by it. It's like when my wife and I went out uh, to eat for my birthday last Friday night. We took a trip down to the Cedarville area and stopped in for dinner at the Clifton Mill restaurant. And we sat down and they gave us the menu and we saw that they had prime rib. I know I just lost some of you for the whole rest of the sermon right there. But you know, sometimes when you order a portion, the the portions these days are often huge, aren't they? And so we thought, you know, let's just order one order and we'll split it and see if that does us good. So we ordered the prime rib and they brought it out to us. And even with just half an order each, we ate until we were stuffed full and even had food left over that we had to take home in a, in a carry-out box. And then, of course, the server comes by and says, may I interest you in some dessert? And we're like, oh, no, we are stuffed. We are full. We've got no room left for anything else. I mean, we weren't mad. We just said, you know, no, thank you. <laughs> we're full. The prime rib was so good. We're, we're stuffed. No room. Paul prayed that the Colossians would be completely filled up and satisfied. By what? Prime rib? No, by the knowledge of God's will. He said, God, cause them to become totally filled up and satisfied by what you want, your wishes, your desires, your will. With no room left for any other will. Think of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. Remember that scene? He knew what was coming, didn't he? And he prays, Father, if there be any other other way, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Literally, there is no will in me but your will. That's the prayer. Consumed, filled up completely with with the will of God. That's spiritual stuff, isn't it? This is asking God to fill people up with an all-consuming, all-satisfying, experiential knowledge of what God wants. Have you ever prayed that for anybody? You can pray that for your kids. You can pray that for your coworker, for your fellow small group members. You can pray this for your pastors. God, fill them up with a consuming knowledge of your will so that it dominates their life. Then the next wave comes crashing in over it filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul's praying that they would gain wisdom and understanding. Interestingly, that's what was being promised by some rogue teachers and philosophers who were floating around that city in that day. They were saying, you need enlightenment. You need some special, superior knowledge and understanding. And if you just hang out with us, we'll lead you down that path. Now, Paul's not against wisdom. He's not against understanding. But in chapter 2, verse 11, he says this, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and understanding. So you want wisdom? Good. You want understanding? Great. It is found in Jesus Christ. Don't be fooled into thinking that Jesus is not enough for you. He is sufficient. He is 
fullness. And so we too can pray that God will impart his wisdom and spiritual understanding to the people in our lives that we care about. Here's the next wave. That they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That they might walk worthy of Christ. This is a prayer for integrity. Walk. You know what that word means. It's used in the New Testament to mean how you conduct yourself, your lifestyle. You know, we talk about your walk and your talk matching. He's praying that their lifestyle would match their identity in Christ. They would walk worthy of the Lord. You could pray this for believers who are living beneath the level of their privileged position in Jesus Christ. Believers who don't really yet understand who they are in Christ, and as a result, their lifestyle, their conduct, is not in alignment with that position. They're picking around in the garbage pile when the fullness of Christ is already theirs. I need to say this to you. We we need to get this. You do not have to try and live up to something that you are not. We simply have to live up to all that we already are in Christ. Do you understand that? It's huge. Big difference. You don't have to strive to try to become something that you're not. If you're in Christ this morning, if you've believed the gospel, it's simply learning to live up to who you already are. Your lifestyle matching your identity. That's the prayer here. God, help them to walk worthy of their identity in Christ. And then the next phrase, like a wave lapping in over the previous one, fully pleasing to him, pleasing God in every way. Now, I don't want you to be confused by this. Paul is not talking here about working hard to be accepted and approved by God, to please him in that way. That doesn't come by our efforts, does it? Having a right standing before God, being pleasing to him in that way, only comes through the sacrifice of Christ for us. Think of it like this. How many of you are parents? Okay. You take pleasure in your children in two ways, I would say. You take pleasure in their identity and in their activity. You take pleasure in your children because they're your kids. They're in your family. You produce them. You, you brought them into the world. They bear your name. And you just, there's a certain pleasure that you take in them just because they're your kids, right? And nothing can change that. They'll always be your children. They'll always be in your family. You take pleasure in their identity. And then on those occasions, hopefully not too rare, when their behavior matches their identity, you take really great pleasure in that. It's like, yes, you're living up to being a Benninger. You're living up to being a Williams. You're living up to being a Smith or a Jones. And as a parent, I take great pleasure in that. That's what he's talking about here when their lifestyle lives up to their good name. The story is told of Alexander the Great one day, the great world conqueror and world ruler making his way through his troops, and he found a soldier there who was supposed to be on guard at his post, but instead was asleep. And so Alexander came by and jostled him and looked at him in the eye and said, What is your name? And the soldier, who was, of course, ashamed to be caught shirking his duty, said sheepishly, Well, my name is Alexander, sir. And to this the great commander growled, well, look, either change your life or change your name. (laughs) Live up to the name that you've been given. 
you can confidently ask God to enable his children to please him greatly by living up to the awesome name that he has given them. Christian, follower of Jesus, Christ follower, child of God. That's the name we've been given. And when we, when our lifestyle is in alignment with that name, it brings our Father great pleasure. And then the next wave of prayer comes in. Bearing fruit in every good work. God, may your people become spiritually productive. Bearing fruit in every good work. You know, there are works, deeds that we can do. There are good works, and there are fruitful good works. And there's a difference. Remember last week we learned that fruit is simply excess life, the overflow of life. And when when your works, when your prayers, when your deeds, when your ministry, when your activity is animated and enlivened by the life that is in you through the gospel, that becomes fruitful good works. And there's a difference between that and just kind of grinding it out. Paul prays, Lord, may your people become fruitful in their good works. May it make a difference. May it be life transforming in them and in others. Fruit is excess life. Then he prays, Lord, may they increase in the knowledge of God. May they know you, Lord, more deeply. Pray that they will know God better. Are you praying for someone these days? Pray that they'll know God better, that their knowledge of God will increase. Do you know that God wants to be known? Amazing thing. God wants to be known, and he has made provision by removing all the barriers that exist in him being known by us. You can pray that the Lord will work in people's lives through their hard times and through their prosperous times to deepen their knowledge of God, that they'll know God better. And then this next request, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. To joyfully endure hardship by God's power. How many of you do that? Last night, there was like one person raised their hand. This is tough, isn't it? To joyfully endure hardship by the power of God. It's only by the power of God, really, that we can joyfully endure hardship. I'm actually... Pleasantly surprised by the outlook of a number of believers who are going through excruciating circumstances with their job, with their kids, in their relationships, in their finances, and yet they somehow manage to have an outlook of optimism and joy. How does that happen? How does that come about? You know, earlier we confessed our tendency to complain and to grumble when things don't go our way. I won't ask for a show of hands on that because it's all of us. But when we're like that, we not only need to confess our sin before the Lord, we need to do that, but we also need to ask for prayer. That God would graciously grant us his power to endure with patience and joy. We can have joy in all things because we know that God is working in all things for the good of his people and for the glory of his own great name. Amen? Focusing on that. And then one last final wave of prayer comes flowing from Paul's pen. He says, giving thanks to the Father. God, may your people have a grateful heart. May they be grateful people. 
No less than five times in this short letter, Paul challenges his readers to be grateful. Did you know that an ungrateful Christian is really an oxymoron? It really is. We've received so much. We talked earlier about being filled with the knowledge of God's will. And really what Paul has laid out for us here is the the will of God. All of these things we've just looked at are the will of God. So many people are consumed with trying to search out and find God's will. You know, where do you want me to live and where do you want me to go to church and where do you want me to work and what school you want me to go to? But when we look at the scriptures, we find the, the revealed will of God has more to do with what kind of people we are than where we work and where we live and where we go to school. And it's the will of God that you be thankful and grateful in your life. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5:16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. There's an old BBS song that asks this question, are you humbly grateful or grumbly hateful? Which is it? God wants a spirit of gratefulness to permeate his people. But how can you give thanks in all things? Listen, here's the key. If your level of thankfulness is based on your circumstances, then it will ebb and flow like the tides. If it's based on your circumstances, you know, you'll have a good day, right? Your boss treats you well. Your kids are behaving. It's a good day and you're very grateful. Thank you, God. It's been a good day. But then the next day, you know, the wheels come off and you're down and you're complaining and you're grumbling because your thankfulness is based on something that can shift and change underneath your feet, your circumstances. But what if your level of thankfulness wasn't based on your circumstances, but was based on your position in Christ? New thought. (laughs) It doesn't have to be what's going on around you that determines your outlook What if it's based on your position in Christ that is unchanging and unshakable? There are people like that. There are some like that. I was talking to a guy once and I said, well, how are you doing today? He said, well, I'm not doing too good under the circumstances. And I said, well, what are you doing under there? (laughs) I mean, we're not supposed to be living our life under the circumstances. Dominated by what happens. We're alive in Christ. The truest truth about you is what God says about you in his word. That's the truest truth. Victor, overcomer, redeemed. That's the truest truth about you. And you can walk through your days with a spirit of gratefulness to God if you're focused on that instead of the shifting sand of your circumstances that can change not only daily but minutely, right? Give thanks in all things. Let's pray for a gratefulness revolution in the church. Giving thanks to the Father. Well, these are very spiritual prayers, aren't they? (laughs) That's how Paul prayed for others. And that's what we're saying here, that the ministry of prayer focuses on learning to pray spiritually for people. And we just got schooled on how to do that by the great apostle. Well, there's one last lesson here, I believe, in this passage. Not only learning to pray as our reflex response to the things that happen and learning to pray spiritually, but third, the ministry of prayer is informed by awareness. 
Now follow me on this. As I read through this prayer in Colossians 1, I asked myself, why these requests? What prompted Paul to pray for these particular things for the people in that church? Then as I read through the entire letter, I realized that Paul had been made aware of some particular spiritual needs in that congregation that apparently informed his praying and guided his prayers. He prayed out of an awareness of the spiritual influences that were present there. It struck me that this was true in each of his letters to the various congregations that he wrote to. Awareness guided his praying. And this is an important truth for us to understand as we pray for others. There are two kinds of awareness that need to guide our prayers, I believe. First, a growing awareness of their condition, the people you're praying for. A growing awareness of their condition and the influences that are being exerted upon them. Your children, your parents, your co-workers, the people that you pray for. What's going on in their life? An awareness of that. And then an even greater awareness of God's provision and power. As we continue through this letter to the Colossians, we're going to see how that church was being influenced by certain teachers, as I said, who were peddling a particular religious philosophy. And basically, they were claiming that Jesus wasn't enough. Jesus was not sufficient. They they would say, Jesus is fine. We're glad you have Jesus, but you really need Jesus and something else to have what you're really looking for. You need a special knowledge. You need a superior kind of wisdom. You need a, a unique spiritual experience that will set you up for life. That's what they were selling. Knowing that, can you see now why Paul prayed for the particular things that he prayed for in this letter? Fullness, satisfaction, wisdom, strength, God's power, all found in Christ. His prayer was guided and informed by a growing awareness of the influences on that congregation. And I I encourage you to do this. Study the people that you're praying for. You say, I'm praying for my kids. Study your kids. Listen to what they're saying. Ask them questions. Find out what are the influence that are being, influences that are being exerted upon their lives. If you can't get it, ask God. God, enlighten me. Show me what's going on with them that I need to be aware of that will guide my prayers so my prayers are more informed, more in alignment with, with reality. But don't just be aware of their condition and context. Pray for an even greater awareness of God's provision and power. Look at the final part of this section again, verse 12. I love this. Giving thanks to the Father. Why? Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Those last two verses, 13 and 14, those are our memory verses for this week, and we'll we'll say them together at the end. Listen, last weekend I said, remember that Paul was a man who was obsessed by the gospel. He couldn't even say hello in his letters without making some reference to gospel truth, grace, and peace. And now I would say that Paul couldn't even pray a prayer without referencing wonderful, glorious truth from the gospel. Look at the five reasons he lays out that they could give thanks regardless of their circumstances. God has already qualified believers to share in an eternal inheritance. 
Listen, there is something waiting for you in heaven if you're in Christ that will blow your mind. You have no idea. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. It's coming. And you didn't do anything to earn it. God did it. He qualified you to share in that inheritance. God has rescued us, he says, from the kingdom of darkness. Can you imagine just being shrouded in spiritual darkness? God rescues his people from that and places us into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light, where truth is prominent and revealed and Jesus is truth. God did that. God has given us citizenship in his new kingdom ruled by his son. We're citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of God. Yes, we're citizens of in the United States, but we have a dual citizenship, and that one trumps this one. And then he uses the word redeemed, in whom we have redemption. You know God redeemed you if you're in Christ? That means to to buy out of slavery. God himself, through the, the precious blood of his son, paid the price for you and I to be free from slavery to sin. You don't have to sin anymore. You don't have to. You're not enslaved to sin if you're in Christ. Did you know that? That's what redemption means. Free from sin, free from the threat of death. You don't have to fear death anymore. Death's just the doorway into eternity and that inheritance. And Jesus, God did this. God, it says, has forgiven us of our sins. Some people I talk to, and and here's how they think. They think, okay, so when I get saved, when I believe the gospel, God forgives all my sins up to that point. But then I need to confess every single sin I commit after that to stay forgiven. I've talked to people who believe that. I thought, oh my, that's not good news. That's horrible news. What if you forget one? What if you miss a whole day or a whole month of sins? You're doomed. Listen, when Jesus died on the cross, all of your sins were future None of them had been committed yet. He pardoned you for all your sins. Colossians 2.14, all your trespasses got nailed to the cross. Now we need to confess our sins to the Lord to keep that fellowship with him open, but it's not to stay saved. That pardon has already been completed. We are justified by faith in the sight of God. We have the righteousness of Jesus credited to us the forgiveness of sins he's wiped our slate clean through the blood of christ and now he holds nothing against you if you are in christ see god through christ has already done everything that needs to be done (laughs) so as we pray for people especially believers let's pray that the lord of glory will open their eyes and make them aware of all they've been given in Christ. And when that happens, when their eyes are open, they will become grateful people. And that gratefulness will be the fuel of their obedience to Christ. And obeying him won't be a drudgery, it won't be a duty. His commands will not be burdensome. They'll be a delight. They'll want to follow Christ. I'll say it again, the gospel doesn't just ignite the Christian life and get us off the pad. It's the fuel that keeps Christians going and growing in obedience every day. And here we see it's also the fuel for our prayer lives. Gospel truth, 
for intercessory prayer to truly be spiritual ministry, our prayers need to be soaked in gospel truth like Paul's were. All that God has done for us in Jesus. And so you might pray for your friend something like this. Oh Lord, open their eyes to all that you have given them. Make them fully aware of all that they have in Christ. Show them their exalted position and that Christ is really all they need. Cause them to see it, God, and be grateful. Our preeminence principle, once again, putting Jesus first will lead us to pray for the spiritual growth of others. Having Jesus first in our life will cause us to want to see that in other lives as well, and we'll pray for it. And it'll dominate our prayer lives. Well, we're going to do something a little bit different right now as we prepare to partake of the elements of the Lord's table. We just listened to a message and read a passage on praying for other people. And and usually when we observe the Lord's table, I ask you to pray for yourself, right? And and you can do that. But this is about praying for others. And, And you have in front of you there on your outline a list of the things that you can pray, walking worthy of God, pleasing him in every way. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to make eye contact with somebody that you're going to pray for, okay? Kind of like, I got you, you're mine, or I got you, or I got you. Just Maybe it's your spouse sitting next to you. Maybe it's someone across the way. Maybe it's the cute girl that you'd like to have a date with, you know, me and you. Okay? Make eye contact with somebody and just... In an unspoken way, let them know. I'm going to be praying for you these next few moments as we prepare to observe the Lord's table together. And just take that list and just take a moment and pray for them. God, fill them. Fill them with the knowledge of your will. Give them wisdom and understanding. They might walk worthy of I mean, just walk through that. So let's do that right now. Let's pray for one another, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll celebrate the Lord's table together. Father, as I look out across this congregation and I see my brothers and sisters in the family of God, I'm very grateful. I thank you, Lord, for every husband and wife here this morning, every single adult, every grandma and grandpa, every student. And Lord, I pray, oh God, I pray that you would fill up my brothers and sisters Consume them with the knowledge of your will, Lord. Give them wisdom and spiritual understanding, God, that they might walk worthy of you and please you in every way and bear fruit in every good work, Lord, and increase in the knowledge of God. And Lord, strengthen them with power and might that they might be able to endure hard times with patience and joy. And Lord, cause them to become grateful people who aren't focused on their circumstances, but focused on their position in Christ. Lord, as we come to your table this morning, I think of Jesus. And I think we would all say we're so grateful for Jesus, who laid down his life for us. We picture his body right now, the body of Jesus that was whipped and scarred and crushed for us. 
We thank you for his body. And Lord, we see him there in our minds hanging on the cross. We see the crown of thorns mashed on his head and the blood streaming down his forehead and his cheeks. And we envision the spear thrust into his side and blood and water pouring out and running down his legs and dripping onto the ground. And we know that was the price for our salvation and our redemption. And we say thank you. Lord, as we partake this morning, may we have a holy reverence for the sacrifice of the Son. Because he offered his life for us, may we in turn offer our lives to you again. I pray this in Christ's name.